So I ask you, what do Captain America, Yarnell, and Nick Fury have in common? They all have shields. Yes, this bad joke can only mean one thing. It's yet another comic book historian podcast. And I am your host, Bill Field. I can't yield. We're going to talk about S.H.I.E.L.D. And we're very lucky this week to talk about the guy who knows Steranko better than, well, maybe even his mother. And that would be Vanguard publisher, pop culture historian, author, creator's rights advocate. And he's also worked with Steranko for over a quarter of a century. I can only mean the man with the plan, J. David Spurlock. David, great to have you this week. Nice to be here. I have to say, this week, it's such a species spicy subject that we're going to call it a comic book brunch, as it were. And I'm your host and Mater D, along with Alex Grand, Isaac, your bartender. Hey, Alex. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Bill. What's happening? And our celebrity chef, of course, is Jim Robert Thompson. JR, how are you, Jim? I'm busy in the kitchen, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) As usual, I'm bugging Jim. Shocking, (laughs) I know. Well, the year that we're talking this week is probably one of the most important years in Marvel and, of course, one of the most important years in the career of Jim Steranko. And I have to be talking about, of course, 50 years ago, 1968. So, David, we're in 1968. But our listeners need to know how we got here in terms of Steranko and Marvel. Can you set the stage a bit as to how he got there and what he did once he first arrived? Let me say, in case your listeners are not familiar with Steranko, I would say that in the history of comics, no one else made as big of an impact as Steranko made in as little time. The amount of time that he was working basically full-time in comics is conversely to uh, to the impact that he had. He, he was really, and, and even when he was seemed to be full-time in comics, he really wasn't. He was working as an art director at an ad agency, playing gigs with his rock band at night, and uh, he had pretty much left his magician's career and escape artist career by the time he got into comics but he was still working in advertising and he was also uh, playing gigs with his rock band i think that the rock band thing gradually came to an end sometime during his his comics run but his comics run really started genuinely in 65 he met joe simon at uh, one of the first conventions in new york and he had a piece, a character he had created, the the gladiator, and he had a piece of art, and he had it by his table. He was not there as an artist. He was not there as a creator. He was actually there selling some comics. And uh, But he had this piece he had done. He had it up on the wall, and Joe Simon saw it and was very impressed and asked him to come visit him. Uh, Simon still lived on Long Island at the time. And they started doing some things, most notably Spy Man, uh, Simon was editing some new superhero comics for Harvey Comics. He also met Wally Wood around that time, who was a major influence on Stranko throughout his career to this day. Uh, in fact, I've got a quote from Jim where he says that Wood was even a bigger influence on him than Kirby was. But those two artists are probably, you know, the tops when it comes to his comic art influences. 
So he's talking. He's hanging out with at Wood Studio, and with Wood and Adkins, and Wood was doing Thunder Agents. But Steranko is a very eclectic fellow, very individualistic, very unique, and I think that Wood had a good concept of that. Wood was acting as a freelance editor, art director for Tower Comics, who published Thunder Agents. So he was. He was writing stories. He was handing out assignments. But instead of doing that with Jim, he made a call to the publisher at Tower and sent Jim up there to talk directly to the publisher at Tower. And uh, I, there was a great mutual respect between Wood and Jim, but I think that that would speak to Wood could surmise from Jim that he was kind of a loner in a way and really needed things to be his way as much as possible whereas Wood was used to working with people who followed his directions and did it Wood's way. So instead of Wood giving him work to do, he sent him over to Tower. Set up, he called Tower and set up the appointment for him. He went over and he met with Harry Shorten, the publisher, and Harry offered him a book. And this is you know, his first major work, and he says, from now on, you're going to be working with uh, my in-house number two man, which is Sam Schwartz, and uh, so Jim did like the first approximately 20 pages of his character he created, Super Agent X. He goes in to meet with Schwartz. He shows the work to him, and they very quickly get into a fight. And uh, Stranko threatens him with bodily harm, and he snatches his, snatches his originals back from him and says, find yourself another artist, and he walks out. And it's actually a long story, but that day, that one day, is got to be, is one of the best Taranko stories, and he went from there. He actually went from there. He went to Archie. He went to DC. I'm going to try to cut the story short. He, he, everyone's offering him work, but it really wasn't the work that he was looking for. He goes to DC. Murray Boltonoff offers to hire him as a writer. He says, "Well, I'm really looking to to uh, pitch Secret Agent X right now." And then he and he goes to Archie and they said, well, we want to hire you to do all our covers. They says, well, I'm really looking to pitch, you know, find a home for Secret Agent X right now. So then he goes to um, uh, Paramount. I think it was Paramount Animation. And they actually took an option on it for a Saturday morning cartoon. And then he looks at his watch and it's uh, it's about 15 minutes till five. He's like, well, what more trouble can I get into today in Manhattan? Uh, with 15 minutes left and go, and he decides to stop by Marvel. And he goes in, he shows his samples to Stan, and Stan gives him Kirby-created Nick Fury. When it was originally done, he called it uh, the Man from Death, and Death was an acronym like Shield is, or Tau, or, or Thunder is, or Uncle, Man from Uncle. Uh, it stood for something. I'm not sure what those letters stood for. But it was part of this secret agent boom in the mid-60s. And so Stan liked what Kirby created, but he says, well, let's do this. They changed it up a little bit. So those early sample pages Kirby did were never used. So he gives them to Steranko as samples to ink before he gives him an assignment. He likes the work he showed him, but he gave him the samples. And so he ends up with the uh, the shield strip in in uh, uh, Strange Tales in um, 66. If you weren't there, it may be hard to kind of realize that there was this huge boom, this secret agent and spy boom in the mid-60s. Right. You got the man from Uncle, you got I Spy, you got James Bond, you got Get Smart, 
even Matt uh, Helm. Matt Helm. Uh, come on, guys. And the, Jim, and the uh, prisoner, secret uh, agent the, man. The prisoner, secret agent man. Uh, Wild Wild West is part yes. of that. Uh, Mission Impossible. Mm-hmm. It goes on. I went to the movie. Uh, I don't know, maybe a year ago. And I looked around, it was all these 50th anniversary spy things. It's like Mission Impossible is playing. There's a lot, yeah. The, the man from Uncle's playing, you know. So in the midst of that, they were saying, thinking, you know, how can we take this huge pop culture explosion and bring it into the comics? And so uh, Wood, when Wood was on Daredevil in 65, he started adding technology, what I call, instead of high tech, I call it spy tech. Wood was adding spy tech to Daredevil. He put uh, different technology into his little horns, into his cowl, into his his uh, billy club. And then he left to create a whole series of characters that were based on super spies, which is the Thunder Agents. Well, Stranko's in the same mindset. He comes up with Super Agent X, and then now he's got Marvel's version, which is Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., Kirby, Kirby and Marvel's version. And uh, so, but he immediately starts to change it from Kirby's initial vision and to polish the character. He actually shaves every now and then. You know, before that, you know, uh, Fury ran around with uh, at least a three to five day shaving stubble regularly smoking a cigar. And Jim shaves him at least once a week or, or, or at least two or three times a week. Puts him in nice clothes. Puts him in a nice space age bachelor pad. Yeah. So he and really he starts sexes to, him up, is what he does. He sexes yeah. him up completely. He, he puts him in. He and he and he's looking at this and he's like, "How can a guy in a wrinkly suit, that's a World War II veteran, who doesn't shave and smokes a cigar, compete with the Fantastic Four and Thor and Spider Man and Captain America?" So he's like, okay, if he doesn't have superpowers, I have to give him powers via technology, and I have to dress him in a way that can be as visually exciting as these superheroes in skin-tight outfits. So he puts him in basically skin-tight leather. Jim told me that Stan told him back in the 60s uh, that they were getting more female fan letters for S.H.I.E.L.D. than any other title. And you have to realize that a lot of these comics readers, they were, you know, uh, preteen. You know, they were 11, 12, 13, 14. And a lot of them were saying things like, I don't know why this really holds my attention, but it really does. Right. <laughs> they, they weren't quite yet in, in touch with themselves in some regards. They were just kind of growing into things. But they were fascinated by it. I think, I think the skin-tight leather had a lot to do with it. Uh, but it wasn't just for 12-year-old girls. It, I'm just I'm deciding that it did not exclude them, and it was fascinating to them. I think in touch with themselves is the right, is the right word. Why don't we just leave it right there? Yeah. Thank you, Jim. That's typically Alex's job. I, I was one of those. Personally, when, when you look at the artists that I work with, some people think, oh, you, you know, I've had people say, oh, that's the guy that works with all the, the old comic book guys. I'm right. like, no, I'm the guy that works with the really good guys. And, oh, amen. 
you know, I'm not, you don't see me doing, you know, I'm not doing books on John Byrne. <laughs> you know, that's, 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 that's comic book art, and it's top quality comic book art. But there, uh, on occasion, there is occasion when comic book art rises above. It may have been created for a comic book. It rises to a higher level, to a level of fine art. Uh, Steranko and, and Kirby, Frazetta, Wood, maybe Adams, people who work in various fields. Steranko did not just work in comics by any means. Adams didn't work in com- didn't work only in comics by any means. Uh, some people chose to stay in, in comics, though they could have easily... I mean, uh, Kirby, until very late, he, he started doing animation work, and uh, he, he stayed in comics because that was his passion. That was the epiphany he had that set him on his career course. Same thing with Al Williamson. Al Williamson could have done any kind of illustration work, and he was inspired by illustrators, but his initial – you've got that initial inspiration. You go back to – it's like the well. You go back to – you know, you know, you're cranking out work and cranking out pages. I'm amazed at people like Gene Cullen who could crank out thousands and thousands of pages over their career and not totally burn out. But uh, you have to have some initial well you go back to to recharge your batteries. And frequently that is some epiphany you had in your youth. With with Joe Kubert, it, it was Hal Foster's Tarzan. With Frank Frazetta, it was Hal Foster's Tarzan, you know. With different people, it's different people. With with Steranko, to a large degree, it was Kirby and Wood. So now, as far as uh, Steranko's initial encounter with Stan Lee, did they get along from the beginning? Initially, they did. Uh, Jim says that in that first meeting that they had, they really didn't talk about comics. They talked about other things. They talked about film. They talked about, you know, whatever. They were just trying to get to know each other. And 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 this story has been told. Neil tells a similar story that when he first went and met Stan, that Stan had a wall with all these comics, like the the last month or two's worth of issues. And and supposedly he told Stranko. And later, when Neil came over, Stranko talked Neil into coming up. And said, "Look, you got to come over to Marvel. There's more freedom. There's more cre- room to be creative." Uh, that Stan told them both the same thing. Pick one. Which is uh, sounds at least magnanimous, um, if not uh, dangerous. <laughs> but Steranko's response was, "I could have had the Fantastic Four. I could have had Thor. But you know what that would be called? Following Jack Kirby, suicide." He says, I picked the worst comic they had, which was also following Jack Kirby, but it was really a third-string title. Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, that's their A-string titles. Uh, Daredevil and the Avengers, those would have been uh, B-string titles. Mm -hmm. Uh, Strange Tales with Nick Fury and Doctor Strange, that's a third-string title. And he figured also that helped him get a little room to move because... It wasn't quite as as high profile, so it was little little less time to spend on it because it wasn't a big big money thing. Hmm, okay, but yeah, they got along later as Jim started campaigning to put all this revolutionary material in. 
And did that start in 1967, those kind of uh, discussions? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, the the four-page spread, and uh, so, so Jim, <laughs> he does this long, continued story, and, he's, and he doesn't know how he's going to end it. You know, Kirby used to do comics like that. He would start drawing the story to find out himself where it was going to go. It wasn't like he typed out a script for himself. And, and, and so, so he, he would get so into the story and the characters that he himself is interested to find out where the story goes. Well, Stryker was kind of doing that with the, the Yellow Claw uh, uh, arc, and he had to come up with this big grand finale. And he he decided he was going to end with <laughs> with a four page. There in the history of the world, there'd never been a four page spread. Uh, uh, Kirby uh, Simon and Kirby created two page spreads in the Golden Age, and um, and Stranko revived them in his comics. But he was smart enough. Simon and Kirby tended to do it as the first spread of the book. Stranko had a little more production background and he knew that the best place to do it was the center of the book because that's the only page that's not interrupted in the gutter it's one page of paper going across so he would always do his two page spreads in the center of the book for that reason um but now he was going he hadn't he hadn't been doing those yet in strange tales because strange tales he only had 10 pages to work with but when he got the we got the full size uh, book in 68 then he was doing the two page spreads but here he decided he's going to go for a four-page spread. Well, you can't do a four. You can't see four pages at once. You have to see two pages and then turn the page to see the rest of the same scene. And and Stan was like, "This is this is crazy." He says they can't see it. And Jim says, "Don't you see? They'll have to buy two copies to see it all at once." Brilliant, Jim. I love it. And that that brings us to our main course, and and that's that's what the whole brunt of this episode is, and that's the year 1968. 1968, Dave. Why are we in 1968 with Steranko, and what makes this such a landmark year? I like to call it the Super Silver Age. To me, 68 was the pinnacle of pop culture, and... Uh, my entire life since 1968, I have felt that way. Given a lot more study, I'm currently seeing 65 as equal to 68 in different ways. There was so much going on in 65. There was such an explosion in 65. But everything that was great at Marvel, all the talents... Their best work was basically 68, uh, with the exception of Wood, who had already left. Now, Wood did come back at the end of 69, and we see superb work from him at Marvel briefly again there, late 69, early 70. He was doing the work in late 69. It was appearing in early 70. So 68 is like the pinnacle. It's not just the pinnacle of Marvel Comics. I'd say it's it's the pinnacle of of American culture in a way, you've got all the things that were going on in politics in 68. It couldn't compare to hardly anything you couldn't compare it to the music scene. You've got cream and Hendrix are the top acts in 68. Uh, Suddenly they're turning out. The focus is on musicianship and innovation and not on haircuts and clothing. 
uh, although there was still pretty, pretty far out clothing going on too. Fashion is another thing that was really going on in 68. But they were uh, suddenly they're putting out double albums instead of single albums, and they're topping the charts. Never happened. No one even considered putting out a double album for a pop teenage rock and roll audience before that. Well, what to me, comics art is to the art world what rock and roll is to the music world. It's about instant gratification. Job one, instant gratification. Okay, you see it, it excites you, it hooks you, it reels you in. But the work that really rises above is that that is not just instant gratification. It's that that you can go back to time and time again, and it's got depth to it, and you get more more to it each time you go back to it time and time again over, over years and even decades. And Steranko is – you've got no better example than Steranko. But you look at Kirby's work. A lot of people now think of Kirby as this oversimplified basic structural shapes. You know, everything is blocks and, and spheres and, and, and uh, cones and uh, all about extreme stylization. Look at his work in 68. There is fabulous draftsmanship there. There's, there's anatomy. There's draftsmanship. But you're also getting the beginning of that stylization. So you're kind of getting the best of both worlds. You're getting more of a, a realistic Kirby that's got the stylization. It took a while for people to realize what was going on there because the inkers didn't know what to do with all those little squiggle marks. They, they really didn't think that he meant those to be inked. And if they were going to ink them, they weren't sure quite how to ink them. Uh, they weren't sure how he penciled them, let alone how they were going to ink them. But Steranko, nothing epitomizes that what I like to call the Super Silver Age, which is the tail end, of the, right at the end of the 60s, uh, 68, 69, better than Stranko's work. They Marvel got a new distribution deal, <clears throat> which allowed them to expand. Well, not only that, but they'd just been sold, hadn't they? Alex, you know a little bit about this, right? Yeah, yeah. Perfect Film and Chemical bought magazine management company for Martin Goodman, and then that caused them to renegotiate their deal with independent news on the distribution. Then a couple years later, they went with the in-house distributor, Curtis Circulation. And now Goodman stayed on, and that's common. When a big corporation buys a company, they don't want to lose what made that company a success. So Goodman stayed on, forget till when, maybe 72. In a way, I kind of see 72 as, as the end of the 60s. I don't see... 70. I don't see December 31st. Midnight, you know, January 1st, 1970s, the end of the 60s. In, in many ways, I kind of see the 60s as being from Bob Dylan's first album in 1962 to Richard Nixon's re-election in November of 72. Year, what year did uh, Stan become the publisher of Marvel? That was 72. Yeah. Was that 72? Okay, yeah, you're spot on, Dave. I, I, which, I agree which, with David completely. On yeah, this. I do too. I do too. The the Green Lantern, Green Arrow series, it, 60s doesn't stop until that stops. Right. I mean, not that that's the only thing, but that's that's not a 70s thing, even though it's in the 70s. That's a 60s thing. Yeah. And and also a term that I like to use is the uh, is when talking about the 60s is you get the nails in the coffin and Stan becoming publisher and no longer being editor-in-chief, that is a nail in the coffin of the 60s. Yeah. And a lot of people have always felt he was much better 
as editor-in-chief than he ever was in any other position other than, you know, being the face man, the PR man. But there's definitely a big shift there. Again, to the broader 60s, not just limited to comics, the the death of Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and Jim Morrison are all nails in the coffin. Also, the, uh, the riot at Altamont, which was at the end of 69. After the beauty and success of Woodstock, then they had this uh, tragedy at Altamont. That's another nail. What about Charlie Manson? Because that kind of showed the dark side of the hippie movement in a way. Right. Except the thing was, he he wasn't born out of the hippie movement. He was born out of inst- being institutionalized his entire life. Right. He had been raised in uh, juvenile homes, detention centers his entire life. When he came out, he sees the hippie movement going on. He says, oh, free love. I could go for some of that. Yeah. And he corrupts it. Yeah. And that was actually his defense in court was I'm a product of society. What you see wrong with me is what's wrong with you. I'm a reflection of what you made me because I'm a product of your your institutions, which is very interesting. He said it more manically than you. It was more like, (laughs) I'm a victim of the system, man. As far as that crescendo of creativity in 68 with Hendrix and them, you would say that Jim Steranko was the visual comic book extension of that around the time when he had his own Nick Fury series. Is that correct? Yeah, we could get into um, a separate thing that I really like to discuss is whether or not Steranko is best equates to Hendrix or Cream. And I would say that Steranko best relates to Cream Better than he does to Hendrix. And I would say blind faith, Dave. Well, I'm just kidding. Bl- bl- that's, that's hilarious. But the problem, <laughs> but the problem and, and actually, well, one, I could go there. Uh, I know you could. That's why I said blind faith. <laughs> let me get back to my part, then we'll go to the blind faith. The reason I say Cream is because Cream was only together for a short period of time. They got together in 66, and that's when Jim showed up at Marvel. Okay, and they split up at the end of 69, but they still had some records that were released into 69. They were still top of the charts in 69, even though they weren't doing any more gigs or doing any more recording after the end of 68. And so they had this huge cultural impact on a a huge wave of bands, all the power trio bands, including, well, Zeppelin wasn't a power trio, but definitely Zeppelin, also uh, Grand Funk, uh, ZZ Top, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The whole, whole, especially anyone that was a power trio, including Hendrix's experience. The reason Hendrix made his group a trio was because Cream was already together and he wanted to, literally wanted to compete with Cream and he was inspired by them and they were the first power trio. But that, Huge effect with a limited amount of of time. Another thing that I I would change that I would say, well, someone else would better fit Hendrix is that Hendrix seemed to have as talented as everyone in Cream was. And that was a much stronger group all around than Hendrix's group was. uh, Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker were stronger than Hendrix's bass player and drummer. So it's not just a matter of early Clapton versus Hendrix. With Hendrix, it just seemed like there was this unbelievable born gift of talent like he was people talked about him being from another planet i think that was the inspiration for david bowie's uh, ziggy stardust and the spiders from mars was that this guy is too good to be from this planet that's an innate talent that you couldn't compare to anything else 
With Steranko, I can you can see Steranko developing through his Strange Tales work. By the time we get to '68, and and Shield goes from Strange Tales into its own title, that was the exact point. It just so happened that the business side at Marvel lined up with the creative side. Every issue of Strange Tales, you could watch Steranko developing. It was like watching Barry Smith develop from Barry Smith in the early Conan issues to Barry Windsor Smith by the end of his run. Yeah, huge transformation. Every issue, you're watching the growth of an artist, which is a fascinating thing to watch. And, and, and I don't, can't think of any other artist that would have been so fascinating as watching the development of those two men, Jim Stranko and Barry Windsor Smith. It's almost by magic the timing was right when they went to the Shield and he got his own title in 68. That's exactly when Stranko had hit that plateau. He didn't need to develop anymore. The man is there. Nobody can touch him. You know, he's as good as anybody in the business. Let's be honest, too. 50 years later, what what are we watching on television but the TV version of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which has everything, everything going for it, uh, from the Stranko era, it's, it's well, the, the outfit. Well, I mean, they're not doing it as well as he did. Granted, but look right at the characters. costumes, David. They, look at the they costumes. Don't have, they don't have the right characters. I I rarely watch it, but the look of it looks very Stranko. You're talking about the costumes, right, Bill? The costumes and the tech. The tech yeah. is very similar to what right. Stranko put out there. And also, any graphic design. Any logos you see in there are, are heavily influenced by Steranko. Well, not only that, but Coulson has a spy hand, even. Oh, that's true. It's like Spy-Man. So somebody that's working on that show knows the work with Steranko and more than just the yeah. S.H.I.E.L.D. stuff. The sh- when they, remember when they did the Shadow movie? Steranko yes. is the top Shadow book cover artist of all time. Okay? You want comic books? Go to Kaluta. You want Pulps? You go to Rosen. Book covers is Steranko. Right, he did thirty shadow book covers. When they were working on that shadow movie, and there's no bigger expert on the shadow on the planet than Steranko, they called Steranko, and they were chatting him up and basically trying to get a little free consultation on the phone, and said, "Look, you know, you should come out here." And he says, "Well, you're going to have to pay me." Oh well, I don't. We don't think that's in the budget. But 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 if you if, if you're in the area, we want you to come by. Well, that's ridiculous, okay? That's ridiculous, yeah. You've got executives of Marvel and and, uh, Disney that are making more money off of the creations that guys did at Marvel in the 60s than those guys ever made. Some of them are making more money in a year than those guys made in a career, or at least in their their Marvel run, including Serenity. And so it's a little, while it's nice to see tributes, it's nice to see homages, it's nice to see tips of the hat, the best tributes come with a dollar sign and some zeros at the end. Yeah, absolutely. There's no better tribute than cash. Yeah, there's no reason that DC and Warner Brothers is paying Tony Isabella as a consultant on uh, Black Lightning. Well, how come they get it? What's wrong with Marvel? Right. Okay, someone there is going to decide, oh, this is the really cool stuff. Let's play this up. But do they call Jim? Do they call me to talk about Getting Jim as a consultant? No. Well, Jim does get credit at the end of the episode, but there's no there's no check attached to that. There is absolutely no check attached to any of those credits at the end of those programs. Okay, I didn't know that. 
that says a lot right there. I, I was led to believe there was, but now you shattered that. There that is not. Let me be clear. There <laughs> is no check attached to any thank you or credit to comic creators at the end of any Marvel programs. There could be something separate. Say, for instance, Jim Starlin has an agreement, and for a couple movies that are going to feature you know, his, his villain, you know, he will get something off of that. But it is not to do with any recognition or list of names of comics creators. I see. They're separate. It's a, it's a rare, unique situation that is not connected to any thank yous or acknowledgements at the end of that, uh, those screen credits. Interesting. Just real quick on 1968, you said something about the market, uh, the business side, and the creative side lining up. So I want to throw a couple things by you. So when Marvel had that new distribution deal with Independent News after they were bought by Perfect Film, they had a lot more books suddenly they could pump out. And so they needed more people to fill in the books, and there was probably a lot less of the editor-in-chief going over every little thing that was coming out. So that, as well as Roy Thomas saying that Steranko influenced Dan so artists could experiment more, get away from Kirby, did all that line up to just explode kind of a more modernized Silver Age Marvel style where just everyone had a little bit more freedom? Uh, Would you say all that lines up into something like that? But once you get to a certain point, Stan and Jim were fighting regularly. And it was a matter of Jim constantly pushing to be allowed to do something out of the ordinary. Comic book art is based upon the absolute cheapest reproduction technology. Okay? Black outlines, flat color. The black outlines serve as a buffer for that flat color because the flat color doesn't line up perfectly. As long as you've got that that black outline, it's still going to read fine. So Jim comes in, he starts wanting to do special effects, overlays, effects in the color without any black holding line. Some of those things required a little extra uh, production. I mean, literally, in those days, if something cost $10 to shoot an overlay, that is $10 that wasn't in the budget. And so Jim would have to campaign for, for anything special. Was he campaigning mostly to Saul Brodsky with these things? To Stan and to Saul, but the only time I remember Jim saying that he fought with Saul was when Saul said, when Stan, when Jim did the, uh, it's like a three-page silent, opening silent sequence in S.H.I.E.L.D. 1. Right. And Saul said that there wasn't any writing, so he was not going to get paid for 20 pages of writing, he'd be paid for 17. And Jim's like, are you crazy? Uh, can you, you have no idea how much more time it takes to write, effectively write a silent sequence than a sequence with words? It's much easier right. to accomplish that storytelling when you have words as a crutch to uh, to accomplish it without that. Saul doesn't, he doesn't know that. He's just looking with numbers and production and pages. And so uh, I, there could have been a threat of some uh, bodily harm there, I don't you think that just comes down to the wacky definition of writing, though, at Marvel? Because according to Stan Lee, when it's written by, filling in dialogue balloons means that's the writing. That's what Stan wanted the writing to mean. 
when you plot a whole sequence, that's the art part. So you don't get paid for writing there. So doesn't that just come down to that funky definition of writing in Marvel in the 1960s anyway, that story with Saul Brodsky? Any other form of business, if you're working for Ford Motors or you're working for in advertising or you're working for, you know, the local movie theater or wherever you're working, you come up with an idea that generates income, you get paid for that. Right, of course. Nobody at Marvel got paid for ideas, okay? You've got a, this explosion of creativity from Kirby, Steranko, Buscema, Ramita Colon, all these top quality talents and some good writers to boot. Nobody's getting paid for that. As Jim put it, they only paid for two things, words on paper or lines on paper. Right, that's it, exactly. Jim also won two of comic books equivalent to the Oscars at the time, the Alley Awards. He won two in 68. Can you tell us anything about that? That's really his biggest year. In 68, he left S.H.I.E.L.D. and started on Captain America. That's just, it's his biggest year. He was still around in 69, but it's almost like he already had a foot out the door. Yeah, he checked out. But Captain America was 69, though, right? The release dates on the covers are 69 release dates. But he started doing that work uh, at the end of 68. So then with him getting the two Alley Awards, but he actually won an Alley Award over Kirby that year, then Neil Adams uh, writes Steranko's name in Strange Adventures 216 of that time. So Steranko was clearly all the rage going on. Did any of this carry any sway over his conversations with Stan Lee to push the boundaries? Yes, absolutely, because he's getting tons of fan mail. He, I think the Stan may have said he was getting more fan mail to his name than any other talent. He was getting a unusually large percentage of uh, female fan, particularly for superhero books. So yeah, that all gave him a little clout, but I, I want to back up just a little bit. We could go off on a tangent, you know, you brought up the peculiarity. People often hear about the Marvel method. The Marvel method basically, in a way, screwed the artist. Many of those artists were writing those stories, and then Stan would do the final dialogue. A lot of the stuff that Stan did, and I like Stan, and Stan and I have known each other for many years, and we've done many appearances together. The most famous talent to ever come out of the comic book business and he's he's one of the most important figures in the history of comics and nothing i don't think anything's going to touch that so i i think i think you know he'll easily stand up to any genuine objective critique only peculiarity really with stan was this odd thing about getting the artist to plot and then him to 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 do the final dialogue and him taking the full writing credit why is it that Stan let Jim have more freedom and give Jim credit for writing when he wasn't doing that with others. One is, as you just mentioned, at, once you get to a certain point, the Jim had uh, shown success and popularity, and that was a reason. But the thing is, he gave Jim more freedom from an early standpoint. I am absolutely convinced it was because he had just lost two of his top three talents in 1960, at the end of 1965, which was Wally Wood and, and Steve Ditko, both largely 
based on their complaints about not getting rider credit and rider pay. And so when Jim comes in and Jim picks to work on the third string book and the first couple of issues he did over Kirby layouts, those are also Kirby plots. Don't mistake it. You look at those originals. you got all the Kirby notes all over them. Those are Kirby plots. Roy Thomas told me, he said, every time I ever worked on anything, I ever scripted or dialogued anything that was Kirby's, Kirby had plotted that story. It's not plotted by Stan. It's plotted by Kirby. Roy told me that. Roy also told me every time he ever worked on anything script or dialogue-wise with Wood at Marvel, those stories were written by Wood. And that includes the uh, Doctor Doom series in Astonishing Tales, yeah. early 1970. Roy told me he was as, as surprised as Wood was when the book came out and it had his name lettered in as the sole writer. And he said if it had happened just two years later when Roy became editor-in-chief after Stan was publisher – that Roy would have made sure that uh, that Wood had at least co-writer credit in there. But I believe because he had lost these two major talents, largely over writing disputes having to do with writing credit, that when Jim came in, it was a third-string book, and Jim was campaigning for it, and he needed some extra help then because he was missing two of his bigger talents. He started bringing in guys who had worked with him in the 50s, like Ramita and Buscema and Colin. They were bringing back. I think Colin was already there. But Buscema and Ramita, he brought back in after Wood left, and then they started taking over more as Ditko left. So I think that that, in fact, there was a fanzine. I don't have the title in front of me, but uh, George R. R. Martin, the creator of Game of Thrones, used to write reports for fanzines. And he wrote a report from one of the New York shows, and he actually said, he says, one of our own, Jimmy Steranko, is just got hired by Marvel where because they need help because they just lost Wally Wood, who's going off to a new publisher to do something called Thunder Agents. That second award that he got was, was definitely not Strange Tales because it was huge. It was the cover for S.H.I.E.L.D. 6, the Wally Wood cover. Homage. That's so yeah. famous. Yeah. Jim wanted Wood to ink that cover. I don't think he showed him the art yet. He told him, he says, I want to do a cover that's uh, a, a tribute to your work, that's Nick Fury out in outer space in a space suit, and I want you to ink it. And Wood says, oh, I, I couldn't do that. And he says, why? He says, why is that? And nobody said it was because Wood was not working for Marvel at the time. And that would have been very interesting if Steranko had gotten Wood to do work on, with him on a cover when Wood was otherwise not working for Marvel. That's not why Wood wasn't going to do it. Wood says, oh, oh, you put too much detail in your work. I don't want to have to ink all that. And and Steranko's response was, I put too much detail. Where do you think I got it from? When the book came out, Wood saw it, and he loved it. And he says, you know, I should have inked that cover. That's great. So, uh, David, in, in terms of actual art for a minute, on that, that first issue of S.H.I.E.L.D. that he does, it seems to me that, that Steranko's doing something that, that sets a stage almost for Alan Moore and Watchmen later on which is the, yeah. the 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 follow from one panel to another in the play in it there's a scene in in the first issue where can tell one girl says except the weather it looks like it's starting to and then it goes to that next panel and it's nick fury on the street corner you know where i'm talking about 
and yeah. it says it and it says it's raining rain it's a follow through from person to person in that way that gibbons and moore was doing and Absolutely. he's doing it he's doing it a decade earlier in that same panel it's the girl says too bad a girl gets lonesome in the big city careful in the crosstown traffic and the next page is that race car careening out and it's amazing that Stranko's doing this so far ahead of i think anybody else it was was that a conscious thing are people aware of that because it's so clear to me when i read this oh i mean this that's a perfect example of what i was saying earlier about and it's not just in the visual art it's also the storytelling most of the creators will all agree that the high point of comics is not the style of illustration not the quality of the rendering but how well you tell a story so you know and that that takes us into the lit- literary end of it too i was looking at an interview between eisner and kirby and eisner sees comics as much more of a literary uh, field kirby sees it more as cartooning and entertainment not quite the literary uh, genre that uh, Eisner saw it as. And and I can see both of them having that take on it, but just because that was Kirby's concept of where he was coming from doesn't mean that his craft didn't it sometimes rise above craft into being uh, fine art or doubling as fine art. So here we've got Steranko doing fabulous literary storytelling. It's not just good comic storytelling, it's also uh, literary tropes. There's no question in my mind that it affected generations of comics people, including the Watchmen series, absolutely. Yeah, he's like doing both Moore and Gibbons in the same thing, and it's really impressive. The, the next one I, sequence I wanted to talk about was the following issue, issue two, and the most fam- the, one of his most famous pages of all, the sex page. Mm-hmm. And, and so what, I, what I'm curious about that is, as much as you know about the, subs- the, the, the troubles that came and whether it was from just Stan or was it from the comics code, what made the two changes, which are... In the on the last panel uh, sequences, the phone is is hung up in right. the in the release, but in the original right. drawing was off the hook. Right. To the best of my knowledge, has it ever been published with the phone off the hook? I believe so. Uh, not in a Marvel reprint. If you look at, you know, Stranko printed the, his book, the volume one, volume two of History of the Comics, multiple times. All right. And the dressing of that book has changed slightly from one printing to another. There were printings that had the title in type and there are printings that have no title on that book whatsoever. Likewise, the address for his company, Super Graphics, changes inside. But also at the back of the book, there is a page for the author's bio and there is a montage of art. And that montage has varied. I think at one time it was one page, and at least once or twice it was a two-page spread. Those changes in fear that the code might, and they are delayed. Code requires changes. That's hurt their publishing schedule. Stranko was always right at the edge of the deadline anyway. They didn't really have time for that. They couldn't hardly take that. Stan couldn't afford it. When you have a schedule of publication, 
you could not miss that. Franco was constantly fighting deadlines, no matter how brilliant the talent was, because one book, if they missed one book in a year, they couldn't afford to lose that money. There were preemptive changes done uh, that Stan ordered. Ironically, the Val on their knees on his uh, shag carpet or, you know, maybe it, it reminded me a little bit of like a polar bear rug carpet. And they thought that was too suggestive. So they took a detail from a prior panel and zoomed in and shot a photostat of uh, a Fury's gun in his holster. Yes. And they, put, and they put that in the last, which actually is far more suggestive than a man and a woman on their knees on the carpet correct, holding each other, just giving each other basically a hug. The so pistol that, going in the holster is the dirtiest panel on that whole page. Well, you know, I was trying to be a little more subtle about it, but thank you very much. I would say suggestive or, uh, or sexual. Dirty, I don't know. I don't know about dirty, but I'll, I'll go with it. I'll run it's with a, it. It's a pistol screwing a, a holster, which is pretty dirty. I mean, was there a rotational arrow on that holster? It's meant to be that. I mean, there's no... So no, Starenko, it, was totally, it was totally an accident. When, when they put that there, they were just looking for something to end the scene. I don't think they meant for that to be there on a, you know, on a, on a secondary or even a subliminal uh, level. I think it was an accident. And Jim has already, always taken it that way, too. He, he thinks that they, they never thought on that level when they did it, but... Once it was done, it's like, oh, this is far more suggestive than what he had actually drawn. As far as the phone on the hook, I remember in the 60s when I was a kid reading that comic for the first time. And even though I was young and possibly somewhat naive, I looked at that and I knew that phone was supposed to be off the hook. Yeah. There, it, there was no logical storytelling reason to show the phone on the hook. Now, there was a palm frond beside it, which could have been a visualization, could have been read as a visualization of the phone ringing. But there was no response to any phone ringing. So, so I assumed, no, the phone's not ringing. That's just the palm frond silhouette. And they made a mistake. For some reason, they showed the phone on the hook when obviously it should be off for privacy and they, they were afraid the kids would be inspired to leave phones off the hook and an emergency call wouldn't be made, and that would be a problem. And that's why they put the phone on the hook. I believe Ramita drew the phone on the hook. I was curious about that. That's, that's great. Because the, the, the other one with it off the hook, that is, that's Steranko, right? Yeah. Yeah, if you see the phone off the hook, that's the original Steranko version. But the gun in a holster, I thought Roy Thomas just kind of slapped that on there. Is that a correct statement? I think he did. I, I believe Roy said that he had, he it never crossed his mind. He was just looking for something visual to end the page. You know, ending with a gun seemed to put him back on track after this romantic sequence back to the, the super spy that the book where they're trying to sell, you know, boys on this superhero super spy. You know, so he, he thought that put him back on track for the adventure side of the story, away from the romance, not realizing it could have a double meaning. And Jim was saying that there was a rotational screw motion. Is that right, Jim? That's how you read that? No, it's just it's how anything. How old were you, Jim? How old were you when you first read it? Um, I would have read it live at the time. 
I was I was but no, and I didn't think it at the moment. It's it's from going to film school that I, I'm I'm yeah. reading it that way. Well actually when, when I, I read it when it first came out and I did not realize any issue whatsoever with the last panel with the gun in the holster. I did know there was a problem with the phone on the hook and I'm like, that's that's just wrong. It should obviously be off the hook. They they want privacy. But I never thought of a, a gun in a holster representing anything than a gun in a holster until later. And then I'm like, whoa, that, <laughs> that is pretty interesting. Putting the gun in yeah, his own holster, quick. what does just that say? One... <laughs> I think we've spent enough time on that one panel. I, right? I just I just want to point out, though. Let's get back this to is in the midst. This is in the midst of, of Psychological Westerns, 1968. So the co- concentration on... The, the gun is a phallic symbol has never been greater in American culture than it was in that particular year. Hey, that, it, that's a lot more academic than what he was saying earlier. So I would I'd be fine with that. But that's a good point, Jim. I didn't realize that. I want to ask about uh, Centurius. He was Marvel's first black supervillain. Jim Stranko created him for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I think, in issue two. Yeah. Are you guys familiar with any other black villain predating that in, from any publisher? No. Uh, I know about after that with the X-Men fought a guy, but not before, no. The point is, is the first. Catwoman was with a kit at the time um, in 1968. So, yeah, there was another, bill, but it was TV. But it was TV, yeah, not in the comic books. Also, it was never central to her character that she be black. It was central to the villain in S.H.I.E.L.D. 2 that he was black. It was never central to... Catwoman, she was played by a black actress, right. but the character was never, it was never part of the character's makeup that the character was a black person. It was just played by a black actress. There's a difference there. There is. So what, what's the backstory behind Centurius, David? I just think he thought it'd be novel. He was looking for things to do different. Let me, let me mention this one. It seems to me, you know, from reading the material, you know, when it was first coming out and rereading it all these years, all these times, that this guy was on a mission to prove himself and to test the boundaries of what could be accomplished in the comic book medium. On occasion, I've heard Jim act like it wasn't that way, that he was just trying to do good professional work, and that was just the way it came out of him. And some of the other artists, including Ramita, had said to me, you know, in the 60s, to try to remember the, the term he used, uh, a gimmick artist. We, we, thought of, we thought of Jim as a gimmick artist, that he was using gimmicks to tantalize and fascinate the readers, whereas... Ramita was from his his primary inspiration was Milton Kniff and Terry and the Pirates. Okay, so he's all about storytelling and form and 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 shadows and things like that. His focus is something else. Storanko tells a story of he would come in with some new outlandish cover and or or story and stan would say oh jim 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 can't you just do it like kirby or ramita and jim said he'd pause and like no 
actually, I can't. I have to be me. I don't have any choice but to be me. And, of course, we find out that after a couple of years of that and all the popularity, it actually, I see nothing more instrumental to what I'm referring to as the Super Silver Age at Marvel at the end of the 60s than Jim Steranko. I am, everyone knows Steranko was influenced by Kirby. Everyone knows that Buscema was influenced by Kirby. I could show you examples of Kirby being influenced by Steranko. I can show you examples of Buscema being influenced by. When you look at Buscema's Silver Surfer, especially he w- he was trying different things. And part of what he was trying was to look hip. Our demographic went from 10-year-old boys, which was the prime demographic for Marvel Comics in 1965. By 1968, you're looking at more high school readers, junior high, high school, and college readers. We're not looking at a primary demographic of 10-year-old boys anymore. And Steranko's work worked to that audience better than anyone else's at Marvel at the time. Now, Kirby's did too, but Kirby also recognized that changed audience. We have a new, more sophisticated audience. I can now tell more sophisticated stories. I can now give, not only can I try a more uh, innovative presentations visually, but with any luck, they'll, they'll really eat it up with a spoon, and they did. It was almost unheard of for the freelance talent to interact with Goodman. Okay. If you were working in house at Marvel, like Marie Severin or Bill Everett, you might have a word between you and Goodman on occasion, maybe just passing in the hall or something. Goodman did not interact with the talent. That was, that was Stan's job. Stan's job was to interact with the talent. Goodman interacted with, uh, with Stan. He interacted with, uh, with Saul They interacted with the talent, not Goodman. But Jim told me that Goodman definitely took note of him. And he says one time he was walking through the office and uh, he would say Mr. Goodman was there. And he says, and he starts snapping his fingers, click, click, pointing at Jim. Uh, uh, Steranko, right? Yes, sir, Mr. Goodman. Keep doing those wacky covers. The kids are eating them up, which half of those quote, wacky covers, Jim had to fight with Stan to get published in the first place. If things like uh, the S.H.I.E.L.D. cover that's primarily black and white, just, you know, uh, lots of things he was doing. What was the guy's name that replaced Taranko and S.H.I.E.L.D.? Yeah, Frank Springer. Right. I met I met Frank Springer once. He he was a little bit familiar with me, and he knew I worked with Taranko. And he says, you know... Jim wasn't the only one in the 60s that knew how to do those techniques. He was just the only one that cared about it enough that was willing to fight with Stan to get them reproduced. Huh. Yeah, the rest of them were just, they were interested in doing good professional work, but they're seeing it more as a job. And this is a difference between being a commercial artist and being a fine artist. And how I say Steranko is a perfect example of comic art that rises outside of the comic form, he put far more thought and work into it than what he was being paid for, all right? And it wasn't like he didn't have other work to do. It wasn't like he was sitting around twiddling his thumbs. He had gigs. The concept that Jim was working full-time in Marvel in the 60s is flawed. 
He never worked full time in comics. He was playing uh, gigs with his band till he, probably more like three o'clock in the morning, and then he would go to the ad agency. He'd be there, I don't know, maybe nine thirty or ten in the morning. All of his Marvel work he did in the middle of the night after getting home from a, a music gig, like three a.m. between three a.m. and daybreak, with sunglasses on. <laughs> Yeah, he's a dynamo. He's a true dynamo. Something I wanted to ask, the X-Men issues he did, like you said, he did three covers and two interiors. Arnold Drake wrote those stories. It was the Lorna Dane saga. It's funny because the first, the 49, where he did the cover, Don Heck and Werner Roth are said to be the pencilers inside with Drake being the writer. But when I look up Lorna Dane Polaris, it says created by Arnold Drake and Jim Steranko. What's the deal with that if his interiors didn't start till issue 50? Just two different things, Okay. Lorna Dane already existed, yeah, but she was only as a civilian identity. Steranko did not co-create Lorna Dane. He did co-create Pol- Polaris. Oh, I see. That is her now costumed superhero slash villain identity. He co-created that character, which is her civilian identity happened to be a pre-existing character. Other times, someone will create a character where they bring back some character and say, well, let's don't make up a new character ID. Let's say that this, like, if you get into the history of you know, Wally Wood's creation or co-creation, the cat, they later changed her into, uh, what they call Tiger. her? Tiger, the werewoman. She's actually multiple characters, but they also changed her into something else, the Hellcat. They oh. changed her into Hellcat <laughs> and Tigra, Okay. And then, so one of them ended up with the costume, and then the other one was the person that had been in the original costume, now donned a different costume. And they, so they make up these stories. Half of that was done years after the people who actually created the cat, primarily Wally Wood, had anything to do with it. Now, that didn't happen with Polaris. That was all happening one issue from another. But by the time Jim came on, To a large extent, a comics character is a trademark, okay? A trademark is not just a word. It's not just an idea. It's also the look, and Steve Ditko would agree with me on this. Steve Ditko says, okay, Stan told me I want something called Spider-Man, and then I came up with all this. I came up with the web shooting. I came up with the costume. I came up. I came up with the idea of splitting the face between his, his, his civilian ID and his costume ID. I came up with the uh, spider senses tingling visualization, just like Wood came up with the visualization technique for Daredevil's radar sense. Okay, There had been a mention prior to Wood of a radar sense, uh, whether they used that exact terminology or not. I think they did, but there was no visualization. That is a creative work. If you say the word Coca-Cola, you can register that as a trademark. But the look of that logo is a much more specific trademark and is much more valuable in a way. All right. When you design the look of a character, that's co-creation. Anybody who designs a superhero or villain character, it is my point of view that designates co-creation. 
Now, 1968 is ending. Jim Steranko blows everyone away, has to kind of fight with Stan a little bit. Then 1969 hits. He has those three incredible Captain America issues. What resulted in him leaving Marvel? Was it there's just too much resistance uh, editorially? Was it that he had an issue with deadlines and he got tired of it? What, What happened? All right. Jim's side of the story is that he learned very quickly that if he turned a job in early, that they would screw with it. And that if he turned it in right before it had to go to press, that they wouldn't have time to mess with it. So his creative vision, if they screwed with his creative work, he got very upset. And that did not inspire him to do more work. All right. He claims that he purposely would turn his job in right when it was due. But Stan was always worried because Stan is the production man. He and Saul have to make sure, guarantee that those books go to press no matter what. A book cannot be delayed a week, a day based on some creator. All right. No matter who he is, no matter how much fan mail he gets. To hedge their bets, Stan commissioned a story that interrupted Jim's shield run, and that really ticked Jim off. He wanted that continuity, and so that's when he left shield. And then Stan does the exact same thing on Captain America. Out of nowhere, Kirby standalone story in there because Stan was afraid that Jim was not going to make the deadline, so he had an inventory story that was either already done or commissioned one, and went ahead and sent it to the printer, and all of a sudden, Jim shows up with a job. Well, here's the job. Mm, oh, gee, you know, mm, we just sent a fill-in issue because we didn't know if you were going to make it in time. Uh, you told me it was due today, and here I am with the job. You know, so, uh, and that's why he left Captain America. Marvel is a business, was a business at the time. You know, they would treat their personnel like that, and he got it in on time. And they still wouldn't go with it. That's After that, I really think that one thing that was a big effect was the fabulous success that Frank Frazetta was experiencing. I think the comic covers, I'm trying to remember what the rates are. Anyway, it goes, the paperback cover paid significantly more than a comic cover. Like, you know, five times, at least five times what a comic cover paid for. So, and Jim was never limited he wanted to do comics he had a great love for comics but he had a great love for illustration he had a great love for music he had a great love for magic he had a great love for a lot of things so you know by the time you get into the 69 and there's some issues going on there there was a problem with he launched tower of shadows there is no question jim feels like the work he did on Tower Shadows 1 is his most sophisticated work he, he ever did in, in mainstream comics, and or at least to that date. And then he did a follow-up story for the next issue, and it was rejected. And he had actually already started to do the follow-up story, featured a new character, Carstone, which is a, a realigning of the letters in the name Steranko, and he's a magician. And Stan says it doesn't look like a Marvel story. You know, there's no fighting. There's only one punch thrown, and it doesn't look like a Marvel punch. 
He's like, this is not a superhero book. Just because there's a character, a reoccurring character, or possibly reoccurring character, doesn't mean he's a superhero, or it's got to be packed full of uh, fight scenes. A lot of the artists were, were complaining that Stan wanted everything constantly filled with fight scenes. I know Gene Colan did. I don't think Jack had a problem with it because Jack was very superhero-centric and action-oriented anyway. So it just came as nature to Jack. The plan had already been that issue three would have a second story with this magician character. And at that time, uh, Steranko and Harlan Ellison were close. And Harlan Ellison was going to write the second appearance. And then when the first appearance was canceled, you know, they they never continued working on that second appearance. But Jim had done a splash page, a splash page. If you ever see something that says Waxworks, that's the splash page for the second appearance of Carstone, which was intended for Tower Shadows number three. Also, his cover for Tower Shadows one was rejected. So, again... He's fighting with Stan. He's not getting paid to fight. He's coming up with ideas. He's not getting paid for ideas. He's only getting paid for words and lines on paper. And he's not building, and and they're claiming that they're keeping all the rights. Uh, He's also fighting with them about getting his original art back. So it's just like too much fighting going on. When that story for uh, Tower of Shadows 2 was rejected... No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't then. It was before that on Tower Shadows One. Steranko wrote the exact verbiage to perfectly fill every single text block. He doesn't like widows. He doesn't like a caption block that's not a straight line. Okay, he doesn't want to. If you look at like Kirby Comics, you'll see a lot of zigzag caption blocks. He, he doesn't want that. On Steranko didn't want that. He wrote every single word to, to, to perfectly fit, the lettering to perfectly fit. He told Stan, he says, look, I put a lot of work into this, and I don't want you to change a word of it. He says, look, you've got a whole line of books that need editing. This is a little seven-page story in a, in a little anthology. You know, It's not going to make any difference to you, to your bottom line. You don't need to waste your time fooling around with, with my writing. And Stan took offense. He's like, I'm the boss here. I'm the editor here. And if I think it needs to be changed, I'll change it. He says, look, if you change a word in this story, you could just find yourself another artist. And Stan says, you can't quit. You're fired. And Stranko says, you can't fire me. I quit. And so (laughs) he left. About a month went by, and the phone rings one day. Stranko picks it. Stranko's already starting to do other stuff. He's starting to do paperback covers and different things. Did he already have the paperback deal by the time he left Marvel and Stanley? Yes, yes. He was never full-time at Marvel. Yeah, he was already plugged in, right? He was He was never full He He was thinking about it. He may have been painting some uh, portfolio pieces to go get some paperback work. In fact, you know that cover he did, at the only Warren cover he ever did? I think he ran on an eerie cover. It's like this ghostly woman in a big yep. tree, gnarly tree. That was a portfolio piece. He did not paint that for Warren. He painted that as a portfolio sample to get paperback cover work. And he showed the stuff to Warren, and Warren says, look, I'd like to use this one right here. And Jim said, okay, but I have to have the original back. Okay, you're not paying enough to keep my originals. He says, and Warren says, oh, no problem. And Warren never gave him the original back, and Jim never did another thing for Warren. 
hasn't had a kind word to say about Warren about since. Warren ever since. Yeah. I tried to get them. I tried to get them together when Warren Warren had disappeared for seven uh, for about fifteen years. Nobody knew where he was. There was all kinds of rumors. He's selling drugs or he's selling arms i had one guy swore to me he was he saw him at a london arms show he was selling tanks or bazookas or something <laughs> and uh and the and the guy looked at his name badge and said jim warren he says aren't you jim warren the publisher and he, he paused for a second he says well i used to publish but uh, right now i'm selling bazookas are you interested in buying a bazooka <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing I find Jim Warren fascinating. I only know very small things about him, but I find him really interesting. Probably about, I think it was around 98 when Warren resurfaced. I was trying to remember the very first place anyone saw him in public when he resurfaced. It was either Joe Orlando's memorial at the Warner Brothers building when Joe passed away. Everyone was quite shocked to see him there. And that's a funny story and a separate story. Or, but he did very early, He uh, when he first resurfaced, he did a Big Apple show back when they were in the basement of the church. I used to tell uh, Carbonero, the promoter, I said, you should call this the Tales from the Crypt Convention, because there were literally crypts down the hall on that floor. <laughs> in the Catholic churches, they frequently bury people in the church, in the basement. And uh, there were people buried down the, down the hall from where the rooms where the convention was held. But anyway, I tried to get Warren. Warren and I became close friends, and and uh, and we were for some years, and then that went soured. But that's another story. But in the meantime, I tried to get Warren and Steranko back together. And Warren came in. We had a special room just for Steranko. And as as people were we were packing up toward the end, I brought Warren in, and Jim was not pleasant. <laughs> Not Warren. Warren was pleasant. Storico was not pleasant. <laughs> so Jim is not one to forget. forgive or forget. You know, he he's there were a couple of things Joe Simon did that rubbed him the wrong way. You know, he never forgot about that. There's one thing that uh, he ever dealt with Warren on, but uh, but it didn't stop Jim from learning from these guys. You know, if you look if you look at it, Jim's writing style and Simon's writing style, they both have a very sensationalistic writing style, and I can't help but think that there's not a connection there. That, that or there there is a connection there because Jim was definitely reading all the Simon Kirby books when he was a kid, and then also Warren made a, a large percentage of his income on the in-house ads in his magazines. Stranko did the exact same thing. I see. You have to hire a salesman and try to sell ads to place in your magazine. You can either do that or you can buy product at wholesale and sell it to your readers. You know what kind of material your readers are going to be interested in. Well, Warren pioneered that with Captain Company. And then Jim did the exact same thing with uh, Comic Scene Media Scene, Pre- Media Scene Preview. A quick thing on post-1968. So in 1970, Jim or releases his History of Comics volumes. I'll tell you a secret nobody knows about that. Okay. I'll tell you, tell you a secret. You want, here's a scoop for a comic book historian podcast. It may have got out just a little bit, but I, most people don't know this. I may have posted it on uh, the uh, Comic Book Historian Facebook group. But originally, Jim was going to ghostwrite the history of the comics and it, and it was going to be put out with stan lee's name on his author 
And Stan wasn't. Stan was not riding it. Steranko was riding it, but the idea was that they'd put it out with Stan Lee's name on it. And when Jim brought in the uh, the rough draft, and Stan starts to read it, Stan realized, or at least from his point of view, I we can't put this out with my name on it. I can't be saying good things about the competition. <laughs> oh. oh, that's great. You heard it first, right here on Comic Book Historian Podcast. Thank you, that's folks. That's right. It's like, I've put all this work into it. The whole book is practically finished. And he's like, well, just put it out with your name on it. You've got your own fanfare following now, you know. And then and he placed, you know, all those ads ran. That that book was advertised in Marvel Comics for quite some time. I don't know if Jim negotiated a discounted rate. Well, gee, you got to help me out here, Stan, advertising this book since the original deal was uh, you were going to sell it as a Marvel publication or whatever, wow. you know. It's better that he took credit for that because I've read those. They Absolutely. are really great. And after all these years, after all these years and all the appearances we do, I mean, for so long, it was like, when are you going to return to, to S.H.I.E.L.D.? When are you going to return to Captain America? But to tell you the truth, I'd say in the last 10, at least the last 10 years, the number one question tends to be, when are you going to put out History of the Comics Volume 3? Exactly. Because there's supposed to be like six, I thought. In, in relation to the, the, the um, uh, 1972 and the covers that he did yeah. for Marvel, because I think they're really interesting because it's after the comics thing. And he's he seems like he, he wants to play not in superheroes, but in in systematically going through all the genres and exactly. doing his take on these genres. Exactly. And he does the text Austin, Western gunfighters, Westerns. He does the two Doc Savages. He does the two jungle comics with the uh, Shanna one and two. He does science fiction with Gulliver Jones and Thongor. And he does the two issues of uh, supernatural thrillers with it and invisible man. And it's like, he just wanted to make a statement. I'm back at Marvel. I just want to show everybody genre means so much more than just superheroes and he nails every single one of them and then drops the mic and goes away. Is that is that the right take on that? Exactly. And it didn't it didn't matter to him that it was Marvel. He just wanted Marvel was courting him. They said, "Look, we need you. Kirby's gone. We need you." And he's like, "Look, guys, I'm making much better money doing paperback covers and I'm publishing my own magazine." And I just don't, they said, well, what about some covers? You could do some covers. You know, everybody loves your covers. And I think, I believe it was Roy, I believe Roy was talking to him. And uh, at that time, they were looking to expand and, and try some different genres. And somehow they just started discussing that with Jim. And that is what exactly, well, just the way you put it, uh, that's what hooked him. Because, you know, the uh, Doc Savage, he's one of the, world's biggest uh, pulp experts he loves the pulp so doc savage the shadow the spider any any big pulp uh, characters uh he's in, into uh and then you get the uh golden age you love the golden age comics you get the jungle girls from the golden age he does his version of jungle girls you get the science fiction just the way you ran it down now he did do some straight superheroes there he did some new shield covers and he did a couple of fantastic four covers didn't they uh, mess it, up one of those Fantastic Four covers? The one with uh, Omega? That was a mess. 
Yeah, it's a mess. I think that Jim's original concept there was almost a little bit of an homage to Schomburg. Ah. I believe it was Ramita again. Usually when if somebody altered Jim's covers at Marvel, it'd usually be Ramita. And and I don't disagree with some of Ramita's corrections on Steranko's work. The biggest problem was probably when they had Maurice Severin redo the Hulk's head on the cover of Hulk 1. I do not yeah. agree with that. I understand why they did it. I just don't agree with it. And I don't think it improved it. I do understand the mentality. I just I just don't think it was ne- necessary, especially for a standalone annual. It wasn't part of the regular series. It didn't have to match the regular series so much. Dave, can you speak to the special relationship that John Romita and Stranko have? Absolutely. There is a great relationship there with Ramita and Steranko. And John is not doing conventions anymore, <clears throat> so we haven't gotten to see him. I, I go to visit him occasionally when I'm in New York, but uh, Jim hasn't got to see John face-to-face in, in some time. We did see uh, John Jr. past October at the New York Comic Con and took some photos and always, you know, tell him, you know, please give our, our love and respect to your parents. John and Virginia are just wonderful human beings, and they both worked at Marvel uh, for so long and were such a, a part of keeping keeping Marvel running in a very highly professional manner. But when Jim came in, John was, you know, an old pro by then. John came in in the late 40s, had worked at Timely and Atlas, and then... Everybody kind of got laid off, and uh, he ended up going over to D.C. and working on D.C.'s with uh, thanks to Carmine Infantino. He got that job because of Carmine Infantino. Carmine pulled strings to get John work over there. Carmine, and most people don't realize it because Carmine was always thought of as a D.C. guy, but Carmine and and, uh, John were old friends going back into the uh, 40s and 50s, and Carmine uh, was uh, very helpful and I think that Carmine somehow, I had to go refresh my memory, helped John's brother keep alive during the war and kept him stationed stateside instead of huh. having to go overseas where there's a good chance he would have been killed. There's a great respect there. And Carmine taught John some things back in the late 40s, or early 50s, including things about drawing women. And uh, a lot of that, the, the best Information you'll ever find out about that is in the John Romita sketchbook published by Vanguard. By the time Stranko comes in in 66, John's the old pro, especially as Jim loved Captain America. Captain America is his favorite character. So he wanted to work Captain America into the S.H.I.E.L.D. stories. And so Stan says, fine, you can work Captain America in. When he saw how Jim was drawing Captain America, he says, look, go talk to John get him to give you some pointers on drawing Captain America. And he did. And it would have been much after that, Jim may have been insulted by such a suggestion. But at the time, he was, you know, very happy to go see, you know, what pointers John had. And John would tell him different things like, you know, when you do your boots, you know, don't make them too big, too floppy, do this, do that here on your feet. You know, it's good if you do this and different things. And, and there was uh, that cover, the, the Strange Tales cover, with where Nick Fury and Captain America are fighting each other. Cap, from about the waist down, that's a paste-over by Ramita. Stan asked uh, Ramita to fix it. Ramita was working in-house. That's why Ramita ended up doing a lot of the corrections. 
and he was the best. They had a couple people in-house. Uh, Maurice Severin is extremely talented, but Ramita's finished ink was just immaculate. So uh, when it came to Steranko, if something, if Stan felt something needed to be changed, he'd tend to have uh, Ramita do it, and especially on Captain America, because Ramita's history with Captain America goes back to the early 50s. He so, actually drew the Kami issues, didn't he? Yeah, where he fought the Russian Electro. Right. Ramita told me, he says, you know, at early on at Marvel, we kind of thought of uh, Jim as being kind of a kind of gimmicky uh, trick artist. I think he used the term trick artist. <laughs> a trick artist? I never heard of a trick artist, John. What do you mean? Well, he's kind of like using gimmicks. You know, he was doing these these effects and things. You know, we were thinking you got to focus on the storytelling. But, but I watched him grow and I watched him develop and it was amazing watching him. And I had commented earlier about being a reader at the time, buying the comics and watching him grow. But for one of the premier talents in the industry who was already, you know, a seasoned pro at the time to be saying the exact same thing is you couldn't get a higher compliment. And they have a great respect. And he says he he went on to become one of the greatest storytellers. You know, you know, we were kind of the fact that he was using these special effects kind of blinded us to for a little while to notice how good his storytelling was becoming one of the, the best that there is. They were, you know, have a great, great, long mutual respect. We were in San Diego one year, uh, Jim and I, and Ramita uh, was there. And Ramita came over and he had this uh, manila envelope. He says, oh, Jim, I've got something. And Ramita had just retired. And he was cleaning out his files at the office at Marvel, and he found some things that had been returned to him that were not by him, that whoever was doing the art returns had mistaken. And it was actually, I believe there was a Neil Adams cover as well. It was a Steranko cover, and it was one of those later, the 72-73, where Steranko came back for a little while and did a bunch of covers, one of the FF covers, and you couldn't quite, it was kind of hard to tell who had drawn it. I think this one wasn't actually even signed, and it was uh, it was mostly scented inks, but it was just kind of hard to tell exactly who penciled it, and they mistakenly gave it to return it to Ramita. And then there, if you remember, there was also one or two Neil Adams Thor covers that did not look like Neil Adams. I asked them both. I asked Neil about his cover. I said, "Why does that cover not look like you?" He says, "I wanted to see if I could create." What I thought of is kind of a generic Marvel look. Yeah, I wasn't trying to make it obvious who's drawing this, but I was just trying to fit in. Uh, instead of standing out as somebody different, I wanted to see how much I could make myself look like kind of a, a, a house look for Marvel. And the same thing with Sirenko. He says, um, you know, on some of the other titles, I wanted to make a statement, but on Fantastic Four, it was such a well-established title I really wasn't looking to buck the system because the system was as successful as it could get. You know, me doing something avant-garde was not going to make Fantastic Four a bigger hit. It was just going to stand out like a sore thumb. So I was trying to do kind of a Marvel style on this cover. But I believe that maybe he was also thinking almost a little bit of a Alex Schomburg homage who did all the great uh, timely Marvel covers back in the 40s uh, because it was a pretty busy cover. So Ramita pulls this cover out. Jim looks at John and says, you want me to sign that for you? Right. And John's like, no, uh, 
I was cleaning. I, I was cleaning out my files, and uh, they mistakenly returned this to me because it didn't have your signature on it. And uh, I was bringing it to you. Huh. And Jim gets quiet for a second and kind of like maybe jerks his head a little bit and says, "You're giving this to me?" He says, "It's yours, absolutely." Jim was very moved because basically John just handed him fifty grand. Right. Right. Fifty grand in those dollars, whatever year that was, which was probably you know I had to look up see when Ramita retired, but you know maybe it was two thousand and two or something like that, two thousand and four. You know, it's definitely it's definitely a while ago. And yeah. that's a beautiful cover, by the way. That's yeah. one of the first Fantastic Fours I ever bought. If you look at the way he rendered the Human Torch, it looks a little more like the uh, Golden Age Human Torch. Does you look, look like the Schomburg cover when you put it in those terms. I completely agree with you. Yeah, yeah, totally, it does. And there's there's like a bank of machinery, and the, and like a ball of flame from the Human Torch hits the machinery, and you see the m- metal melting. That really looks Schomburg esque. That and the demon looking Nazis in the. Uh, no, I'm just yeah. kidding. <laughs> but, that helps. That helps. Yeah. Somewhere I saw the pure Steranko version. There are rabid Steranko fans, and they will basically curse anyone who had the audacity to change any Steranko piece of art. And uh, but this this did come up. This cover did come up in conversation in one of the uh, Steranko Facebook groups not too long ago. Most of us, I think, ultimately, at least those of us a little bit more knowledgeable about art, came to the conclusion that it was it was a good decision. Jim had had Quicksilver running on kind of just kind of straight. Ramita had taken that figure and tilted it and then updated the legs just to give it a little more action, a little more direction. And I think it was overall an improvement. And we have... You know, we have that version, and we have the original Stranko version. The original unadulterated Stranko version is probably in the IDW Stranko big hardback. They keep photostats of these things before they make their alterations? Like in this instance, they probably statted the part with the Quicksilver figure by Stranko, and then they probably cut out the part they wanted to keep, and then patched on Ramita's fresh legs, and then took that whole section with the Steranko torso and the Ramita legs and then pasted that on top of the original and then shot the whole thing. Sometimes they may shoot the whole thing and then just work on top of that stat uh, and not actually work on top of the original. But it depends on how how much changes have to be done. Alex, do you have anything else you'd like to ask Dave? So, again, he leaves comics in the early 70s, and he goes more into pulp book covers, and he does a couple volumes of History of Comics, publishing his own magazine, Comic Scene, Media Scene, Preview, his magazine for maybe a couple decades. 25 years on his magazine. 25 years on his magazine. His paperback covers dropped off significantly. I'd have to look up to see what year he kind of dropped off on the paperback, but there is definitely a, a big, just like practically stop doing. Occasionally, he would do a painting for a paperback. After that, he did uh, more recently. He did some spider paperback covers. Yeah, he did paintings yeah, for other things. He he did like that Nick Fury versus Shield painting. That was yeah. uh, there was a huge poster made of that, as well as the uh, graphic novel cover. And he would do paintings. Sometimes there would be. He did a Hercules painting for a Hercules comic by Radical. So he really likes to paint, but there is, 
there, right. there is a, a very unique quality to his his line art, and a lot of people really like that. A lot of the comics fans did not know where – when he disappeared from the comics, they didn't know where to look for him. You know, all, a lot of comics fans, they're just stuck in comics, and they don't see the broader world of illustration. They don't. They weren't necessarily buying paperback covers or looking at the paperback stands. They didn't. They right, didn't. Right. They didn't realize he was doing. He was one of the Other for a while there. He was one of the top paperback cover artists there were, along with, you know, I'd put Frazetta at number one. For a while, Jeff Jones is probably number two. You've got people like uh, Obama in there. You've got Frank Kelly Freeze was a very prolific uh, paperback cover artist. There for a while, Stranko was given a real run for it as well. Probably did about 100 paperback covers. Yeah, it's a lot. Marvel paperbacks, the, I believe he did at least one or two that Otto Binder wrote. He did a hardcover cover for a X-Men novel. He did black and red printed on silver foil. He did a paperback cover of Captain America. He talked them into not running any title treatment on there at all. He says, you don't need it. Captain America is your title treatment. He is your logo. He is your, your trademark. He talked That was all through Byron Price, and he got him to approve that. Paintings, he did a few Marvel cards. There was a triptych. You know what a triptych is? Horizontal painting, and it would be cut. It, it turned into three cards. He did one was basically the all winter squad. He had he loves the golden age. So he had Captain America, the Human Torch, and the Submariner, the greatest three golden age Marvel characters that you know were brought back in the Silver Age. And he did one painting of the three of them together, but it comes out as three cards. So he got paid for three cards. He does one painting, it gets paid for three cards, and it comes out as three cards, and then you can put the three cards together to make the full scene. Kind of it like reads the, like three splash pages, right? Yeah, yeah, like the like the Strange Tales Yellow Claw finale. He did yep, the exactly. Same, he did the same thing with a triptych three card on the X Men. At that time, they had been experimenting with different costumes. They called this the Blue Team, is the blue, more traditional blue and yellow costumes, opposed to some of the others. That's a nice triptych. That's out there too with uh, Marvel trading cards. Marvel has profited endlessly on his work. What is ridiculous is how much they continued to profit off of works Duranko did for them, primarily in the 60s. No genius up there in all these decades gets the idea of calling him to do new work. I could tell you where they screwed up some deals. We had we had a couple deals working, and, and Marvel totally blew it. They just blew it, and they lost big money. It, they have an option now where someone can – have a custom comic printed, a custom Marvel comic printed. And some of the conventions have done that. We had a deal where a convention was going to pay for this official Marvel comic to be published. It was going to be a reprint of Avengers 4, The Resurrection of Captain America, with a new cover by Steranko. And we were going to premiere it in New York and have Stan and Steranko there to sign it. And every copy that was not sold at that convention was going to be slabbed. Okay, Marvel was going to make like an easy 20 grand on the thing, and they blew the deal. I had set up the whole deal with the convention promoter. He had direct contact to the department that handled the stuff at Marvel. He told them that Stranko's agent, David Spurlock, had talked to Jim, and we approved a budget. The convention is paying Stranko's fee. Marvel's not paying the fee. 
but it has to go through Marvel because it's official Marvel publication. So the convention would pass Duranko's fee on to Marvel in addition to what they're paying Marvel, what their deal with Marvel is. They're paying the additional fee for Stranko. And then and then Marvel just turns that check around to Stranko on a Marvel check. All right? They they screwed up the deal. They lost twenty grand on the easiest deal in the history of the world. And I'm not gonna go into the gory details, but I mean that's that's it's just lunacy. That deal they they blew it and the whole thing was set up by us, by me and the convention promoter and a CGC facilitator, not by Marvel. You know, Marvel is not coming to me saying we want new Stranko work, and they're not coming to Jim. These recent covers, there's been a quite a flurry of recent Captain America covers by Jim, alternate covers. The truth is, here's another scoop for you. Those were all commissions for fans. He didn't draw a single one of those covers for Marvel they're, because they're not willing to pay him what he gets to do a cover. He gets real money, and they won't pay it. But... I know the guy. He was a, he's a guy. He's a newspaper reporter. He's actually working, working in Washington, D.C. now. He's a big Stranko fan. He's commissioned a couple of Stranko drawings over the years through me. And he was talking to Marvel, and he said, look, you know, look at these beautiful Captain America drawings Jim's done. You should run some of these as uh, alternate covers. No genius in Marvel ever came up with that idea. It took us to come up with that idea. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay. And so, yeah, you know, for Marvel's regular cover rate, Jim will make an agreement where they can reproduce some of his existing drawings. But it's not like they commission. If he were commissioned to do an actual new cover, that'd be much more elaborate. Now, he dressed them up really nice with some great graphic designs, great graphics. But they really were commissions for collectors is what they were done for they were never designed to run as a a finished art for a published cover there is talk right now that he's going to be doing a big anniversary uh superman there's big superman anniversary coming up that he's going to do an alternate cover for that and he's done a few covers he did a couple batman covers for dc a few years ago with batman black and white and uh, there was two covers, if I remember correctly. Uh, there was some big anniversary. They wanted him to do his take on the first appearance of Batman from Detective. And he did that. That's penciled ink and color. And then there's one that ran on Batman Black and White that was just pencil. What, why did Media Scene Preview end? And what year did it end? It was about 1996. It started. It started slowing down. There were some distribution issues. It's very difficult to switch distributors. It went. For, it started out as comic scene. It was purely focused on comics, and then it kind of broadened its horizons a little bit. It was more of an entertainment magazine called Media Scene. Media Scene covered comics, but it also covered some movies. It also covered they they would have record album reviews in there and animation. And, yeah, but those were all in a tabloid format. And he decided that he wanted to go with a more traditional slick magazine. It's more expensive than a tabloid format. And he did, and that's when he changed the name to Preview. At that point, it really was more of a movie magazine 
it's still there was always some roots in the comics there and as i said he had a lot of in-house ads and a lot of the in-house ads were for graphic novels and posters he went for zeta posters or graphic novels one of the fascinating things was all those years of media scene and and even preview he would design these fabulous ads for whatever products he had bought to sell and and he would design logos and frequently his logos were better than the logos that were on the real product. The Wood Estate authorized a, a new edition of Wood's uh, Wizard King graphic novel a few years back through Vanguard, and I called Jim to see if we could use the logo he designed, and, and he said yes, and, and we we used that. And also, he designed a logo of Paul Galassi's Saber graphic novel just for his ad. They decided some years later to reprint that book, and they went to Galacy went to Jim and asked if they could use his his logo that he had designed for the new edition, and they did. But once they got to the preview magazine, it was really a movie magazine. The people had been with him kind of since the comics period. You know, they like her- heroic stuff, so it gradually started becoming not just movies, but there's always like adventure movies, action adventure movies, science science fiction were always big, and then it kind of gradually starts going into this kind of beefcake cheesecake direction at some point jim put out a uh, a poll for his readers to find out what was it that they liked so he could figure out what really was his market and at that point he would do once a year he would do like a pinup issue and the pinup issue was was easily the best-selling issue of the year and the poll by that we're all saying, oh, we like all this, you know, beefcake, cheesecake movie stuff and adventure movie stuff. And so he went even further into that direction. But the problem was, and I told him, I said, Jim, you didn't take that poll until you had already started into not just being a movie magazine more than a broader entertainment magazine. There was a distribution issue. For a while there, Jim was looking to sell it, but he wanted big money. He wanted like a million bucks or something like that. I was going to help him. There was a publisher I was talking to a little bit, the publisher of Ring Magazine, the boxing magazine. He actually publishes a number of boxing magazines. That was someone I was kind of pitching it to. And also it was as the Internet was coming forward, and Jim... He really likes being on the cutting edge. He At some point, he said that because of the, the distribution issues, he was going to go to an online magazine. But it's very difficult to continue an online magazine the same way you produce a, a, a finite number of pages for a print magazine. Right. And uh, the thing just kind of kind of fizzled out at that point. I see. So Internet helped kind of kill some of the magazine business, and he was possibly part of that. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely killing it now. The whole publishing industry is in really, really bad shape, mostly because of the Internet. The ultimate goal is the concept that if a creator can protect his work and control the usage of their work, then that will inspire them to do more works. And then we all benefit by the culture in our society. Likewise, after so many years... The reason why it goes into public domain is because it's deemed that the creator had enough time to profit off of it. And at this point, it will benefit culture better by it now being accessible to everybody. All right. So when you hijack it and you use copyrighted material without authorization, without royalties, 
you are undermining our society and you are undermining the creator's ability to create because if they can't pay their bills, they can't devote time to creating new works. And then we will have a dumbed down culture and we will have more crime and we will have less enjoyment. So I guess we can say Internet killed the comic book star. Yeah, the music business, too. Amen. I have one question to ask you. Considering how great, and Strank is on my top five list, by the way, and he's on a lot of people's top five list. He used to be number 36, and then he started working with me, and now he's regularly in a top five list. Once you started handling him, I went, well, if Dave's handling him, he must be in the top five. No. <laughs> but, but no, no, no. I've known David for a long time. I've known him for like 30-something years, and, and back to the Dallas Fantasy Fair, we both currently live in Texas, and you know that's that's a brotherhood all in and of itself. But what I wanted to ask you is: any other comic artist or writer ever done less material and been as big? Because I don't think he's done more than a hundred comic stories. Oh no, it's 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 far less than that. It's more like twenty-seven or twenty-eight. Wow. So, wow. Now I don't. I think that's only in his original. Marvel run, but he didn't do much storytelling after that. He did Frogs for himself. He did The Block. He did Chandler Red Tide, and he did Superman 400, and he did Outland, and that's that's about it. That's amazing. He does have that unfinished second story that was originally going to be for Tower of Shadows. For years, Dave Stevens begged him to let him ink it, and Jim kept saying, I'll think about it, I'll think about it. And then I published two of the pages, first time they'd ever been seen outside of Jim's house or in, or in Stan's office, in the little book we did called Strangographic Prince of Darkness. That was one of the first things we did together. That was about 1997. Fabulous. I mean, it's, it's as good as The Stroke of Midnight. And uh, no feathering, high contrast, lots of shadows, very dramatic. Then Stevens took those two pages and blew them up and lightboxed them and inked them sent copies of that to Strangler, says, now will you let me ink the story? He says, I'm still thinking about it. Well, Dave has now passed away. Strangler's still thinking about it. Strangler thinks he's going to live forever. Well, he may. We don't and, know what kind of deals he's made with whoever. And I Just told saying. him, I said, Jim, <laughs> I said, Jim, maybe you will live forever, but the rest of us aren't, and we want to see this stuff in our lifetime. So we're going to forego dessert and go straight to the tip, and that would be... The tip of the weekly or bi-weekly rants right here on the Comic Book Historians Podcast. And I'm going to start this week with Big Al. Big Al, what is your rant for this week? You know, the concept of a comic creator, artist, leaving comic books and going to another field is really fascinating. You know, we talked about Jim Steranko leaving comics and going into uh, publishing his own work and book cover illustration. It's interesting when you look at, let's say, a particular age. So lately I've been looking at the Golden Age and seeing what of a lot of those Golden Age artists that we look fondly at, what did they do? And it's actually interesting to see and follow their work after comic books. So you have Alex Schomburg, who did sci-fi covers for uh, magazines and books. You have Mac Raboy, who went on to newspaper strips doing Flash Gordon. You have Dan Barry going on to the Flash Gordon dailies 
You have Lou Fine. He left comic books and went into advertising. You know, I find just looking at the stuff they did after comic books just really fascinating. And I think just as a concept, that should just understood that it's a it's a fun thing to do. I really recommend that for any listeners. And even Wally Wood went on to do an Alka-Seltzer ad and uh, Alka-Seltzer print ads, which I, I believe you might have even turned me on to that, Alex, which those are fascinating. Now, my rant is, we got into this earlier, but my rant is, I think Steranko deserves credit for shield the television series because everybody's wearing leather the way he intended them to it's his costuming and his take on characters including the hand of spy man which is now the hand of phil colson i believe all of these things came from steranko and i can't believe he has not seen a dime from this because they're evidently making a lot of coin on the TV end, and it's in its fifth season. And from day one, it's looked like something that Steranko, you know, came up with. So that's my rant. And now that feeds into the rant of the man, David Spurlock. David, what do you have to rant about? Well, <clears throat> I don't know if I'd call this a rant. It's kind of a philosophical question, but it definitely ties to your comment about Jim. The concept, you know, a lot of comics collectors, they're very nostalgic. They're kind of set in their ways in some ways. They get one idea in their head, and it's hard for them to get a, an objective view or to see the picture outside of their frame of reference that may be limited strictly to their ideas of comics when they were a kid, when they first read them. And now as an adult, you know, that's their happy place they go back to out of nostalgia is revisiting their childhood through their comics, things like that. E even if they're buying new comics with characters that they turned on to in their childhood, things like that. But when you're thinking about creator rights and history, uh, discuss about the history of comic books, you know, the f job one is to identify who, who created these characters. You know, there's nothing more important than saying, you know, who created it. When you start to see various characters being created by the same creator, then you can kind of see the arc of their career and certain themes that run through their work. So I would say the biggest creator in the history of American comic books is Jack Kirby. There are others that come in quickly, you know, thereafter, including Stanley and Carmine Infantino would rise to the top two. And a lot of people might want to debate, well, exactly what did Stan really contribute and you'd have to take that and look at it probably on a case-by-case -case study. The new concept that anytime, anytime you know, I bring up some, some new concept, people want to see something new, but then when you actually present a new idea, it's like they all get stirred up like a, a hornet of bees or something. One idea is, is it possible, is it accurate, is it deserving that... A creator could take over a strip, a feature, after its launch and be so valuable to that property and contribute so much to that property that it equals the contributions of the person or persons who initially launched that character, initially developed that character. The two examples that I tend to hear come up most frequently is Steranko on S.H.I.E.L.D. and Wally Wood on Daredevil. I would tend to agree 
that if there is to be a time where a creator could be cited that brought so much to a property and infused such new energy and interest and broadened the audience for that property to a point that the property as we know it, the property as it's most loved and is most profitable and has is most endeared itself to uh, the public is the property as known through this particular creator's work and what he brought to the table there, how he changed the character, how he added to the character, how he defined the character, how he polished the character. I was posting some quotes from Samuel L. Jackson the other day talking about how inspired he was by Steranko's run on S.H.I.E.L.D., and that made him want to be Nick Fury. And he ultimately came to play Nick Fury in the movies, even though Nick Fury was created as a white character. But when Marvel found out that he was interested in playing the role, he was such a big Hollywood star, they didn't care that he was black and the character was supposed to be, you know, I mean, realistically, to the story of the character, how many black guys would have been the head of a group of soldiers in World War II in Europe? I don't know if they ever tried to explain that one away in the movies in the, that uh, Samuel L. Jackson appeared in as Nick Fury. But anyway, I believe I they say, called it a Costa Rican tan. I, I think he went on vacation and came back, you know, <laughs> with a really good tan. And then the Samuel oh, L. Jackson he, era he, began. He I'm kidding. Long. Sorry. Keep going. So that was the explanation. All right. It's a very good position. It's a very interesting topic of discussion. Uh, when it comes to comics history, especially if you're talking about creator right and who brought what to uh, what properties. And in that subject, in that discussion, I can't imagine better examples of Steranko on S.H.I.E.L.D. There's no question that S.H.I.E.L.D. was, if not on the verge of cancellation, was at least a third string title before Steranko took it over. There's no question that every rendition of S.H.I.E.L.D. since Steranko basically had to live in the shadow of what he did with the series. Likewise with Wood on Daredevil. Now, Jim was actually on S.H.I.E.L.D. longer than Wood was on Daredevil, so it's easier for him to be remembered. And by the time S.H.I.E.L.D. left uh, being in Strange Tales, where it split the book with Doctor Strange, to getting its own title called S.H.I.E.L.D., Stranko was on the first issue, but he had been in many, many issues of Strange Tales before that, initially by Kirby, and Kirby is the rightful creator. There's no question that Kirby is the creator of Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. His original title was different, so Stan did contribute to... I don't know that Kirby had the idea of saying, okay, this secret agent character that I'm developing here... Let's tie him to this other character we have, Sergeant Fury. That may have been Stan's idea as well. I'm not sure if we if we know for sure which one of those guys decided that it'd be good to tie him to uh, Sergeant Fury from World War II. With Wood, Daredevil was launched by Bill Everett, supposedly written by Stan. But if you read that first issue, in fact, if you read any Daredevil issue predating Wally Wood, and including the Wood issues, you will find very few marks of Stan's writing style. Everett confirmed that he did uh, some of the writing on that first issue, and his his daughter and, I believe, son also confirmed that they remember him working on that storyline for that first issue. And then Orlando took over. He did issue two, three, and four. Orlando has been quoted, and I knew Joe. Joe and I were very close 
Stan may have given him a villain or an idea to start off a plot with, but Orlando was used to working from full scripts, and he was very um, kind of put off by having to do what he felt was a lot of writing on Daredevil. And when he would turn the pages in, Stan would then have him redraw pages. You know, it's like, like, gee, Stan, if you wrote a full script out, then I'd draw exactly what you want me to draw. I wouldn't have to redraw these pages because you made me do half the plotting, and now you don't like it, you know? And I, and he wasn't getting paid for that extra work. So he wasn't getting paid to co-write the book, and he wasn't getting paid for the pages Stan didn't like. He would only be paid for the pages that were accepted. You know, Marvel wants to claim that work was work for hire. That's not how work for hire works. Work you have for, to pay the person first. Yeah, when you when you do work for hire, you get paid whether they use it or not. If you have to accept now under the new law, which went into effect in 78, if a freelancer can sign a contract to call freelance work, work for hire, and to accept only being paid for what's accepted as part of their contractual terms. But that's not the true original legal definition of work for hire, which is a traditional employee situation. It's only things that have come later that have made it possible to consider some freelancers work work for hire but key to the concept of work for hire is the work is paid for whether it's used or not and that the work is deemed the creation of the company because you're only a cog and a bigger wheel and you're only doing a little piece of the work and the other employees are doing the rest of it so orlando leaves and right about that time wood had just left mad and when uh, stan found out that wood was now doing regular comics again he really wanted him so they decided he would take over daredevil and all the supporting characters that were added during wood's run on daredevil were created by wood that includes all the villains the only villain in that whole run that was not created by wood was daredevil legendary daredevil number seven the battle between daredevil and the submariner well wood from childhood through his entire life love creating characters and he created characters he couldn't hardly work on something without creating characters but if he was going to do a superhero book he was nostalgic about the golden age and if he wasn't going to create new characters himself his interest was something from the golden age well guess who's from the golden age the submariner so when he finds himself in marvel and he's thinking about doing anything other than creating new characters it's going to be Captain America, which he did on Avengers, Submariner, which he did in Daredevil number seven. And they had talked about him launching the Submariner series in Tales to Astonish. And then the Human Torch, and he, he worked on at least one Human Torch story in uh, Strange Tales. Not only was he writing those stories, he only got full credit for writing for issue number 10, but he was plotting those stories all the way through with Stan doing the final dialogue. There are a couple of times where... It was cited that he was plotting elsewhere than the credit box, either on a letters page or in the Mary Marvel Marching Society newsletters, places like that. There may be an editorial note that Wood was plotting. What he actually did with the character of Daredevil himself, most people are in agreement that he saved the book, which probably would have been canceled by issue six, just like the Hulk had been the year before he took over Daredevil. Hulk was canceled by issue six, and they expected the same from Daredevil. Stan really didn't relate to Daredevil. He was told by his boss, Martin Goodman, 
to do a book called Daredevil because he found out an older publisher, Lev Gleason, had gone out of business who had a Golden Age character called Daredevil, and he thought that was a good title. So Stan was not personally invested in the character of Daredevil. He didn't come up with a concept, and he didn't come up with the name, and uh, but he was doing what his boss told him to. He's launching a book called Daredevil, and he's looking for someone to do it and to do as much of the work as possible, plotting as well as drawing. He started with, with Everett. It didn't work. He went on to Orlando. It didn't work. He got to Wood, and he struck gold. And I think suddenly once, once Wood showed him what Daredevil could be, then Stan got it too, and at that point, Stan really did get Daredevil. But if you read all those prior issues, there, like I said, there are little marks of Stan's writing style in those prior. You'll see in the little editorial boxes, you'll recognize Stan's writing style, just like any other red- editor might put in an editorial blurb, a promotional blurb, or a, a note reference to a prior issue, something like that. You'll see that on the splash pages and occasionally elsewhere. But the actual storytelling doesn't have the ring of Stan's writing. The character himself of Daredevil, Wood, did a huge changes to. He's, he's very well known for creating the red costume, but he also took a cane. Before Wood took over Daredevil, the way Daredevil got around town was on foot. That's not very superheroic. On foot. He walked down a sidewalk just like anyone else. He had no cool way of getting through town. Occasionally, he'd hop out a window, and to his luck miraculously every time he hopped out a window there was a flagpole there and he would swing off of the flagpole to get a softer landing to the sidewalk below at which point he was back on foot again wood knew instantaneously when he took over that strip that there had to be some cooler way for this guy to get around he hadn't quite figured it out in the first appearance but he knew he had to have a cooler way so in the very first appearance he had him swinging through town on a rope that was from a window washer's rig. And then by issue seven, built the cable into the into his cane. It was basically, I think it'd be referred to maybe once as a billy club before Wood took over, but it was, it was basically a standard blind man's cane. The only thing that was different about it than any other cane was there was a hinge in the middle that made it easier to carry. He could put it in a little holster. And so he wasn't always, when he was in his superhero costume, walking around with a walking cane. Was there a frame with a billy club in a holster after he was with a woman? Oh, sorry. That was another subject altogether. I I apologize for that. I I digress. I digress. That's a good one, Bill. Ask Jim Thompson. He's he's got all the gun and holster stories. Well, that brings us to Jim's rant. Jim, I'm sure you have something to rant about. I've never known you not to. Can you please give us your weekly or, as it is, bi-weekly rant? Okay, my rant is about the Oscars. Part one, Wonder Woman. It was a DC movie, and it didn't suck. That alone doesn't qualify it for an Oscar nomination. I went through category by category, and I didn't see a single area in which I would want to bump a nominee to make room for Wonder Woman. Which brings me to part two. There was a comic film which did deserve a nomination and didn't get it. But it was Spider-Man Homecoming. Yes, I'm talking about Michael Keaton, who gave the best film performance as a complicated supervillain since Heath Ledger's Joker took home the gold back in 2009. And finally, part three, DC and Marvel may not have done super well in Oscar nods this year, but I'm going to argue it was a stellar year for another company, EC. Dunkirk 
perfectly captures the essence of a Harvey Kurtzman two-fisted tail story. The Shape of Water is right out of Wally Wood's Weird Science, and most significantly, Get Out personifies a liberal social satire commentary in the guise of horror that Gaines and Feldstein excelled at. So while it may not have been a stellar year for superhero Oscar nominations, I thought it was an exceptional one for films that captured the spirit of comics and specifically of EC Comics. That's it. So we would like to thank our very special guest this week, Jay David Spurlock. Dave, thank you so much, buddy. It's been a real pleasure and a privilege for us to have you on the show. Alex, I, you might want to say bye to Dave. Bye, Dave. Thank you so much. We're going to chat soon. Thanks and for having me. I would like to thank Dave from the bottom of my heart. Dave, thank you. And we appreciate everything you uh, had to uh, give us today. And I know much more about Steranko now than I did before. And I hope all of our listeners do too. And please tune in next time to the Comic Book Historian Podcast. For Alex, Jim, and Dave, I'm Bill Field. See you next time. Aloha. Thank you.